Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the latest proposed fee hikes coming down the pipe in Vancouver. Speaking about living in an expensive city. Here we go again now. This is proposed by Vancouver City staff now. For, okay, check out some of these fee and license hikes here. This is incredible. 46% increase in the fee for a business license. Really? A, a trade contractor license. That could be doubled. What, what? I thought we were supposed to be making housing cheaper. Now you're going to start doubling the fee for a, to, to have a contractor license in trades. What is going on? Of course, increased parking fees. Don't want to forget about that. You, you drive a car, they're coming to get you again. Let's discuss now with my guest, Chris Sims, BC Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Okay, Chris, I appreciate it a lot. So so let's break down some of these uh, proposed fee hikes here now. And some of, what jumps out at you here? What's, what, what's the one that's catching your eye? Well, exactly as you just pointed out, it was the doubling of a trades license. And so yeah. in general, what that usually means is if you're a tradesperson, if you are a carpenter, a plumber, an electrician, you name it, and you want to do business and bring your tools into Vancouver, you got to have that cert- that certificate. Well, now it looks like they want to double it. And same thing. It looks like they're going to continue their war on the car punish you for having your own private vehicle. And to your point earlier, when you were discussing affordability, um, I don't understand where the city government thinks people are going to get this money from. Like there is not a magical money printing machine that provides (laughs) valued currency magically for people. Like people are already (laughs) way deep into debt. They've maxed out credit cards. They're maxing out their lines of credit just to pay rent and groceries. And now they're proposing these massive fee increases and folks just can't afford it. Yeah. I mean, you can't get blood from a stone and a lot of people have already been soaked dry for for sure. I mean, people are just stretched. We've seen the studies and, and, and reports on how a lot of people are just one paycheck away from not being able to pay their bills. Now, the, the city, though, Chris, saying, look, we are looking at these targeted fee hikes because we don't want to stick it to homeowners again with an increased property tax. So what we will do is if we we impose these higher fees, then maybe the next property tax hike will be a, a little less. Okay, so this is actually doing people a favor here, they say. Let's listen to Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry here on these proposed fee hikes. This does offset the sort of the cost, and I think it's, it's, it's money coming from a different source for sure, but it's paying for services that people are using. Okay, so he says that these fee hikes, Chris, are just defraying the cost of running the city. Your thoughts? It can't defray it, though. Because to your point, you can't get blood out of a stone, and those same stones are in the same pants. Just because (laughs) you're taking it out of the left-hand pocket (laughs) instead of the right-hand pocket doesn't mean you're not paying it. So it it doesn't just magically come from, you know, this person called a tradesperson or this person who uses an Uber. That is still the person living in Vancouver who is the taxpayer and at the end of the day has to pay it. I will point out. So this is, you know, I just took a quick glance because I'm now moved out to Alberta. I'm the Alberta director now. And one of the main reasons we moved is because of affordability, because it's absolutely outrageous to try to live in the lower mainland. I did a bit of rough math and I took a glance at the Vancouver budget. I hope folks are sitting down. 
So back in 2015, the total expenditure for Vancouver City Hall was $1.2 billion. Fast forward to now, 2023, $1.9 billion. Mike, that's a 58% increase in spending. Your over, over what period of time was that again? 2015 to 2023. Wow. Last eight years. Eight years. Keep in mind, the okay. population has gone up around 6%. Yeah. Why is there this huge gap? Why has spending gone up more than 50% when the population has gone up around 6% for the city of Vancouver proper? They let's need talk to a little explain bit of, this. Let's break down a couple of these other fees here. Let's, let's go yeah. back to the, the contractor fee, Chris, because this is one that really jumped out at me. So, you know, yeah. we're living in a city where demand for housing is off the scale. Rents are rising crazy, like going up almost every day. To forget about buying a place, like most people have just put that completely out of their mind. Now they're saying we're going to double the licensing fee for a general contractor. Like, what would that do to, you know, for for the home building sector in in Vancouver? So, of course, it is just going to increase the cost of it because all of that stuff that goes into building a house involves these sorts of men and women who work in contracting. And keep in mind also, it's not just the new builds, it's if you're living in your apartment or your house and you're on Boundary Road or downtown or wherever, and your you know, sink breaks or you have to fix your home heating, that requires a contractor to come and fix it. They're going to pass that cost on to you. These people are not magical. You know, They can't absorb this hit. That cost trickles yeah. down. And so again, it shows this detachment from reality at Vancouver City Hall that thinks that they can just shift <clears throat> the cost around and they'll magically get it. No, it always comes from human beings. And these human beings are tapped out. I'll point out, Mike, yeah. a lot of times when you take a look at things like food bank reports, that's what I look at when I'm trying to figure out how tough people are in right now. How much are they struggling? We're seeing record demand in British Columbia for food banks from what people call working families. But that's a euphemism. <clears throat> what that means is a parent who's got a job is still counting on jars of peanut butter and donated cans of applesauce to feed their kid. That's in Vancouver. And now they want to charge you more after a 10% property tax increase. Right. Yeah, this is on top of the the, the most recent property tax increase for sure. Chris Sims is my guest. Chris, let me ask you real quickly. Okay, on the parking issue, this is one that really hits home for a lot of people. So they're talking about expanding the number of parking meters across the city would raise nearly $5 million a year. So $5 million more per year from parking meters. I, I presume they're talking about parts of the city where you can park for, for free now? And then and they put meters in there? Is that what this is? They must be. They must yeah. be. And there's very few places in Vancouver where you can park for free. So are they yeah. talking about residential streets again? Remember oh. remember when they tried pushing through that parking tax increase and they were going to nail yeah. people for daring to drive a newer vehicle? I yes, bet yes. you it's something like that, Mike. Yeah. And also on-street residential parking permits, talking about that going up going up as well. So, you know, when it comes to driving a vehicle, I mean, obviously they're trying to encourage people to get rid of their car, right? Take public transit instead. Is that the plan? Yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, that's good. I want to be really blunt here. That's fine for people who are comfortable taking transit 
at night when they're finished their waitressing shift. That's fine for people who are physically fit and able to rollerblade to their grocery store. Not everybody can do that. There are people who don't feel comfortable taking transit. There are people who are not able-bodied. There are seniors who need to get to doctor's appointments. There are a million reasons why people need their own private vehicle. And it is okay. not just some, some money pit for the state to use. I will give you one bit of hope. The mayor of Vancouver has got an apparently an independent fiscal review going on right now. And we're expecting that report in October. Let's hope there's saner heads in that one. Chris, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on this today. I appreciate it. Hang in there, folks. Thanks, Mike. All right. Let's talk about the neighborhood corner store now in Vancouver, elsewhere in Metro Vancouver, throughout British Columbia, too. Is this a threatened species when it comes to small business operations now? So you know the stores I'm talking about, right? Like the store near your home, on the corner, in a residential neighborhood. Maybe sell some basic groceries, household items. A convenience store, right? Maybe you can buy a cup of coffee there, lottery tickets. The city of Vancouver right now launching a study on these small stores, these neighborhood stores, looking at ways to preserve them and help them. They say this is a cherished part of our city, and some of them are feeling the pressure for sure. Let's discuss it with my guest, Sarah McIntyre, Vice President for Western Canada, the Convenience Industry Council of Canada. Sarah, it's nice to talk to you again. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on today. So let's talk about these stores here. How big is this sector? How many of these stores do we have? Well, nationally, uh, we've got a pretty big footprint. We have uh, 23,000 stores across the country, uh, employ about 200,000 people. In British Columbia, uh, numbers are still pretty big, 2,200 stores, 19,000 people are directly employed in the convenience sector. Um, and we do a lot of tax collecting for the government, $1.6 yeah. billion just for the provincial government alone and fuel, lottery and tobacco taxes. Are these often run by family? Are these family businesses in a lot of cases? Um, it's a mix. We have some corporate yeah. stores as well in our membership sure. and some of them are family members. I mean, you know, when you think about the you know, archetype of a Canadian dream for, for immigrants and new Canadians, it's often the convenience store. So, um, you know, we've got a a good uh, diversity across our sector, but um, as, as you know, the survey kind of, I think indicates is what we see is there, the stores are, are under threat. There's, we've seen a number of them closing throughout British Columbia. In fact, I think in the past two years, we've seen a 4% decline in the number of stores throughout the province. Oh, wow. Okay. That's very interesting that that's the direction we're going in here. Why is that mm-hmm. happening? I think there's there's a number of different reasons uh, for that, but um, the old business model just isn't working for a lot of convenience stores, um, you know, rely upon a lot of foot traffic coming in and fuel traffic and uh, people just aren't driving as much. Um, either from because they're working from home or because gas is two dollars a liter, um, take your pick. Um, and and also there's been the, for a lot of convenience stores the emergence and prevalence of contraband tobacco across the province, but also across the country has made it really difficult um, to stay their keep their doors open, as well as labor costs and keeping and retaining labor. Um, and you know, retail safety is a big thing. I think you've probably heard that from many retail operators, 
Um, you know, you have all, uh, individuals coming in and filling up their backpack and waving goodbye and walking out the door. And there's very little um, that uh, anyone can do about it. The police are tapped, um, you know, so they don't really have the resources to come in and, and look at, at those types of costs. But at the end of the day, it's the business owner that has to eat that. Speaking of Sarah McIntyre, Convenience Industry Council of Canada, talking about the plight of the neighborhood corner store, convenience stores in Canada, as you heard Sarah describe there, on the decline. I really want to dig into that issue around uh, contraband tobacco. We've discussed about that on the show in the past, Sarah. Also, some of the uh, the shoplifting and, and robberies that we're seeing in some stores. Let me ask you real quick, though, on the cost of running these businesses. Like we just talked about the number of fees and taxes that are set to rise in this in the city of Vancouver. You got such expensive real estate. I mean, it must the the in the input cost to run a small business like this must be going up. Oh, absolutely, especially in urban areas, but really across the across the province. You know, real estate, as you say, is the biggest driver, but yeah. also labor, and then all these taxes and licenses and fees. In fact, the the city of Vancouver is looking at uh, for convenience stores that have fuel stations um, increasing their business license to $10,000 if they don't put in certain EV stations. And some of these guys don't really have the space for EV charging. So um, they're kind of putting a, on a rock in a hard place. Oh, my goodness. Okay, let's talk about some of these other pressures you described there. First of all, so shoplifting, and in some cases we get some violent confrontations, like like literally armed robberies here. Let me play a clip here for you, Sarah. This is Jake Curry. Okay, so he is he's a teenage store clerk, works in a local convenience store, corner store in Nanaimo. And here he is describing the day that he was working and a guy comes in with a mask and threatens him with a knife. And he fought back with a with a baseball bat. Have a listen to this. That's when the 14-year-old who happens to be 6 foot 3, 300 pounds, saw the mask, then the knife, and instinct took over. There's a bat just right down here, and I reach for it, and that's my swing from the left. Yeah, okay, so he took a swing at this guy, knocked yeah. the knife out of his hand, and the robber turned around, chickened out, and just ran away. Have a listen to one of the customers in the store here, Gary Robertson. Is just fed up with this. Here he is speaking to Global News. It's frustrating. All the people in the community who um, enjoy shopping at local shops, um, that's all put in jeopardy when, when people decide that they want to rob places and, and make it less profitable or even more dangerous for somebody to own a small business. Okay, Sarah, what are you hearing from your from your people on this in terms of like shoplifting and that kind of thing going on? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. And, um, you know, we're hearing it even from customers that are coming into the store that they'll change their behaviors or not coming into a convenience store in the evening hours because they're they're not feeling safe in the store. Um, but, you know, as a business owner, how are you ensuring that your employees are safe? So most of our members have an observe and report policy. Do they don't want to see any escalation for risk of, of violence or, you know, injury? But, you know, there's I've, I've heard a few stories where, you know, there was this young girl second day on the job. She goes out to, you know, where they keep the windshield washer fluid in those plastic bins yes. by the gas pumps, goes sure. to unlock that. Somebody was sleeping in there wakes up abruptly and ends up clocking her in the face second day on the job and she's off in an ambulance and obviously she's not coming back to to work at that location so 
it's it's a ripple effect um, when you have issues with addiction and homelessness and and lawlessness and it spills into the convenience store it spills into the retailer and so how are you able to maintain staff when those are the types of conditions that they're facing you know i as a kid worked at a becker's in ontario uh, in high school and it was kind of the job that you went you had when you were in high school um, and now I think a lot of parents are kind of questioning, you know, when are the hours and what are you going to be working when you're in a convenience store? So it's something that we you know we need to work with policing agencies. We need to work with our elected officials. It has to be a priority. It has to be addressed. Yeah. Um, and it's not just a simply cost issue. It's obviously a safety issue for employees. For sure. Let's talk about this contraband uh, tobacco mm-hmm. issue now, because this is a, an mm-hmm. issue we've talked about on the show before. And I know that for a lot of these small stores that tobacco sales are a big part of the revenue and, and the business model there. But when you mm-hmm. are competing against sort of black market cigarettes and people can buy super cheap, super cheap tobacco and cheaper, super cheap cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, good luck competing against that. Let me play a clip here for you. This is Weldon LeBlanc from Crime Stoppers on an earlier show talking about the appeal of black market cigarettes. Let's listen. The, uh, the pricing of legal cigarettes, it increases over the years through increased taxing and so on. So the differential between a, leg- a carton of legal cigarettes and a carton of illegal cigarettes is very appealing to the average person. Yeah, so Sarah, like, you can understand why people would want to spend less money on, on cigarettes if they, if they smoke. Tell me what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge, huge issue, and it's one that's, um, it's not just BC specific, it's across the country from Newfoundland to to here, and and in fact, we're, we're going to have a report looking at the size of the contraband tobacco market in the country in BC, Ontario, and Newfoundland in, in a couple of weeks, so hopefully I can come back on and, and dig into the numbers with you then, but you know, it's not just revenue that the provincial government's losing in tobacco taxes. It it is hitting the the individual convenience store operator when um, somebody down the road or even online can offer a, a, a carton of cigarettes for sixty dollars, whereas our 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 uh, convenience retailers, uh, the you know the price is one hundred and seventy five bucks. So you know everyone's got these inflationary costs. You just had you know everyone's facing the pinch. So you're looking to save some money. Um, it's not a hard calculus for the for the consumer and for the smoker. Um, the the difficulty and the frustration for our members is that it's going and growing unabated and unchecked and unnoticed and and not really a priority for government. We've been trying and trying and trying to reach with this provincial government specifically here in BC. Um, and I can't even get a meeting. I've been trying to get a meeting with wow. the minister responsible since I joined this organization in December. Won't meet with us. Um, and it's it's resulting in, you know, as talking about that 4% closure rate across the province, that's directly why. Mm. Now, I, I, um, that's very interesting. I wonder why. Like, I, I, are there sensitivities around, like, Indigenous interests here? Like, because there's, I guess there's a popular belief a lot of this black market cigarettes gets, gets smuggled through First Nations reserves, especially around the border. Is that is that true? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's part of it, Mike. But I think that that's a, you know, a... a a superficial understanding of the issue. I mean, some of most of the the cigarettes are produced on reserve, but it's it's organized crime that's actually yeah. 
distributing, networking, and profiting from contraband cigarettes. You know, uh, whenever you see a bust in the news where there's contraband tobacco, like a lot of it, there's always guns involved, there's always cash, and there's always cocaine or fentanyl or some other more illicit drug that's accompanying it. And the reason for that is nobody busts contraband tobacco, so the risk profile is low. It's eight times more profitable than cocaine. And so these groups are using contraband tobacco to buy their guns to buy other illicit drugs. So it it really is all connected. Community safety, organized crime, and contraband tobacco, and your convenience store, you know, unlikely characters together, but it's all having a ripple effect. And we're seeing no action whatsoever from this provincial government. Well, they should be acting on it because this is hitting their bottom line too. Like if we take a look at the impact on provincial tax revenue, when this kind of Mm -hmm. black market is flourishing, that's a big hit. So I'll play one more clip here for you from uh, Weldon LeBlanc, Crime Stoppers here, commenting on that point. Like, how much is this costing the province in lost tax revenue, contraband tobacco? Let's listen. Tax revenue is important to fund a lot of the social programs that we uh, that we depend on. So when you um, when you have a, a trade as big as the contraband tobacco trade, it has a it makes a significant dent in the revenues that come into the province. Okay, Sarah, your thoughts. You think the province would be more concerned about this right now? Yeah, I mean, it's and it's not just a you know a thousand or a hundred thousand dollars. We're we're looking at you know in a in a few years that's about two hundred million dollars that the province is just letting uh, sit on the table and 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 not um, and not uh, have any enforcement trying to collect that money. So those are things that can have you know extra police officers, extra firefighters, extra paramedics. I mean, yeah. we're we're entering a phase where you know budgets are getting tighter and and costs are going up and and the government has to make choices and priorities you would think um revenue and uh would be would be a priority but uh it it just we just cannot get any traction whatsoever sarah thank you for coming on today i appreciate it okay thanks so much mike All right, talking about living in the city of Vancouver, let's talk about the cost of living in this extremely costly city. So taking a look at some of the latest numbers from Numbio, is an urban cost of living analytics website, and it calculates and compares and contrasts the cost of living in cities all around the world. Vancouver, not only unaffordable for many people right now, but it seems to be getting more expensive practically by the day. So we're going to run down some of these costs of what it truly costs to live in this city. Got Margareta Dovgal standing by to discuss. Particularly tough for young people, as we've talked about on the show before. And I want you to listen to this montage of young people in Vancouver and elsewhere in Metro, British Columbia and Canada talking about this difficult economy right now especially for young people, the cost of housing, everything piling up on young people. A lot of people taking to social media to talk about it. Some of these videos are, are, are powerful. Let's have a listen to a sampling here. I have $70 worth of groceries on my table right now, and I genuinely don't even know what I purchased that made it to $70. I just got a good job. I start in September, but even with that job, I can't buy anything. I can't afford the rent these days. The wages are staying the same. I can't afford to move out. I'm 24. 
and I'm embarrassed that I can't move out. So what am I supposed to do? Where, where am I supposed to go? I'm working like three jobs right now because the cost of living, and I'm not even really saving that. I'm not saving anything really. $350,000 got you a really nice place, at least where I'm from. Now it's like, you need $700,000 plus to even get a half decent home. I feel so utterly stuck. You go to school, you get a degree, and you're still not guaranteed a job. 60k a year that used to be like a decent amount of money not anymore i was telling my parents like it's just so frustrating that like you do all the right things you go to university and then you come out you get a job whatever and you can barely afford rent yeah this is what people are dealing with and this is how they're feeling and when you take a look at down some of the numbers on this most recent survey on the cost of living in vancouver it starts to add up in just black and white numbers. So you're talking like housing, transportation, groceries, just daily living essentials. Let's discuss it with Margareta Dovgal now. Margareta uh, lives in Vancouver. Uh, she's a renter there, housing advocate. Very pleased to welcome Margareta back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, good to be here again, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. When you hear those voices there, I mean, you're a young person, and I know you, you, know, you discuss these issues frequently with your friends, your colleagues. Is it familiar what you're hearing there? Yeah, it's abysmal. And, uh, you know, the the country that uh, we live in for many decades has been called the land of milk and honey. Uh, At least that was the uh, general gist of what my parents heard uh, before they came here from Eastern Europe uh, in the 90s. And many other Canadians, uh, those who are newcomers themselves, those who are parents of immigrants, uh, you know, have always considered this place to be somewhere where we can have a very high quality of life. Uh, We can have uh, widespread prosperity and opportunity. And I think to a large extent, that's still true. But uh, on this affordability issue, uh, particularly for young people who in many cases aren't in the housing market, can't get into the housing market and are being priced out in a very aggressive way, we're uh, certainly not feeling that. It it feels more like uh, the Soviet Union of my my parents' generation and uh, Uh people living with their parents until they move out and get married. Uh, That's that's not a functional place for uh, a developed country with you know, this much wealth. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, my parents were immigrants to Canada, too. And I remember growing up, my dad was a working guy, had a number of different working class jobs, didn't make a lot of money, but, you know, I was able to get by. You know, I was able to able to have a pretty good, solid kind of, you know, lower middle class income. And, and we kept us comfortable. It is so hard now, even with a good paying job, as you heard in those clips. So let's talk a little bit about some of those cost pressures here, Margareta. So some of these numbers coming out in this latest survey, let's talk housing. So so you're a renter in Vancouver. I know you're feel everybody's feeling the pinch here. Talk about the, the cost of housing in this city. What kind of impact is that having? Yeah, it's abysmal. I'm a working professional. I uh, make a fairly good income relative to my age bracket. And, you know, uh, as many commentators were saying earlier, uh, it's uh, incomes that you think would be in enough to to get by on, uh, particularly as a single person or as many of my friends are, you know, a couple both working, still struggling to get by. Uh, and it's just not enough. Uh, I, I'm saving. I'm not saving enough. Uh, many of my friends are in the same position uh, because housing prices are really just eating up so much of our income. And uh, for I think the second or third year in a row, we're actually rated as the third most unaffordable city in the world uh, behind Hong Kong and Sydney. Uh, You know, your average or your median price of a home to purchase it is about 12 times that of your median household income. Uh, So you're not going to get to a point where you can, you know, you know, either a purchase anything outright uh, or even just saving for a down payment is out of reach for many people. Uh, And, you know, those who own, those who rent homes out, 
uh, are having their operating costs go up too. Interest rates are, are hiking right now. Uh, anyone who has a mortgage that's due for renewal is uh, feeling the pinch there. And those costs are, again, being passed down to renters on the secondary market. So it's a really tough situation. And, uh, you know, my heart really goes out to everyone who's uh, just just barely, barely able to make it work. Uh, everything is going up, though. Housing, food prices, uh, consumer goods, just across the board. And, well, let's talk a little and, bit about some uh, it's really of putting a lot of pressure. Let's talk a little bit about some of those food prices because that that's another big one that affects everybody. And you know, you go to the grocery store now, you go go to the checkout with like one bag of groceries and you're looking at what I paid $80 or whatever for one bag of gro- what how is this how's the math working on this like the sticker shock at the grocery store is just incredible. What are you hearing from your your friends and colleagues? Like are people people struggling? Yeah, and they're cutting back. Uh, we're making yeah. decisions about where we live, uh, how much food we eat, what kind of food we eat. Uh, you know, a lot more of my friends are talking about meal prep solutions, you know, taking a Sunday or a Saturday and just uh, getting a lot of stuff into the freezer. Uh, and for some people, that's still not enough. They have to go and uh, uh, really make some substantial sacrifices, reduce uh, how many times a week they eat meat. Something that many of us uh, you know, grew up as a sort of normal thing if you're in a family that eats meat meat um and yeah it's 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 a situation that's being seen around the world right now we're having huge challenges uh with things like uh, availability of wheat on global markets uh the conflict in russia and ukraine is is, is a good example of that uh energy prices have spiked fertilizer supply is constrained there's labor shortages all across the supply chain um but yeah we're outpacing uh some of these things uh substantially and because everything else is so expensive including housing when you know you would be able to absorb increases in housing in in food prices we're not able to because everything is going up simultaneously and incomes aren't growing to, to keep up with it. So uh, it has a real human impact. You know, pe- people feel depressed. I have so many friends talking about leaving Vancouver and mm. I'm just sick of losing people that I care about to other places because we just haven't been able to bring in the solutions that we need to fix these issues. Speaking of Margareta Dovgal, who's a Vancouver renter, housing advocate in the city. We're talking about the cost of living here in Vancouver. Some of these recent indicators coming out about you know we we talked about the two big ones i think it's kind of food basic food uh shelter of course is the big one um then you've got things like just daily cost of living expenses like the your cell phone bill every month your utilities the your bill keeping the lights on uh transportation if for people who have a, a vehicle if you got a gas powered vehicle man you're getting absolutely creamed as usual at the at the gas pump but even if you don't have that, all these costs add up. And what do you have left at the end of the month after you pay all these bills? Like Margareta, what are what are your friends telling you? Like, what do they have left over? There can't be a lot of discretionary income lying around. Not very much. I mean, they they say ideally you're supposed to save a couple of months of uh, your income, you know, in case you lose your job or something happens, you get sick. Um, I know very few people uh, in my life who are able to do that. Um, you know, some folks have things piled away in an RRSP, uh, but the amount that they're able to put into their savings is very low. And so many of us are servicing credit card debt, uh, mortgage yeah. debt as well. Uh, you know, economists uh, say that uh, we're some of the most heavily indebted in the world relative to our entire economy, uh, over 100 percent, which is just crazy. So for every year, every single thing that's produced in this country, uh, that's actually outpaced by how much Canadian households 
owe different banks. Uh, and, you know, it was OK when the, the credit was easy, interest rates were low, but they're going up. So that general state of being over leveraged isn't just taking a human toll and affecting people's mental well-being, their physical well-being. Uh, but it can really ha lead to impacts across the economy. Uh, I'm yeah. worried that folks are going to start to default and we're going to see uh, huge impacts everywhere else across the economy. Talking about the cost of living in this city, Margareta Dovgal is my guest. Dave and Burnaby on the open line. Hi, Dave, go ahead. Hi, um, hopefully you can hear me. I, um, I have an opposite point of view. I, I have no sympathy for these people at all, none whatsoever. When I graduated... Along with my generation, unemployment rate was 18%. The real unemployment rate in places like Nanaimo was 25%. Port Alberni, the unemployment rate was 30%. You had to go door to door to door to beg for a job for $8 an hour if you were lucky. And maybe you could get two part-time jobs, and that would be enough to get on somebody's couch. You know what I say to these people? Suck it up, buttercup. Okay. All right, Dave. Thank you for that. Just suck it up. Okay. Well, you know, the problem is, Margareta, your thoughts on that? Like, the problem is when you sort of start breaking down the numbers, and I understand that point of view. I mean, other people struggled in earlier generations, too. I get it. But when you take a look at the, the average income in this city compared to, say, the price of housing, which is the big cost driver here, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's, the numbers are not working here. Your thoughts? Yeah, we're in different times. Uh, you know, every generation has its own pressures. And, you know, we don't live in a world of unicorns and rainbows where uh, scarcity doesn't exist. Um, that's just how the world works. Uh, the things that we need are always in short supply. And uh, we can't just print money uh, with, with no effect. Uh, we, we need to have goods that we're exporting out to the world and uh, bring those incomes back in, pay people. Uh, so the types of challenges that Dave was talking about, yeah, very true. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people are taking that mentality right now that they need to scrimp and they need to save and they're taking their own responsibilities really seriously. But I don't think the problem is... Uh, you know, the system or, you know, the, the fact that scarcity exists, it's that governments have dropped the ball on addressing these drivers of unaffordability. And uh, whatever issues we have in whatever generation we're in, uh, we need solutions. So the solutions we need for 2023, uh, people were sounding the alarm bell about them a decade ago, 15 years ago. Uh, and we haven't seen meaningful progress on those things in a long time. So, so what, I think would that's be, what would be no. some a potential some potential solutions in your mind? Because I think we talked before about you Want, should there be like a huge government intervention in housing, for example, or is there is there another way to harness private sector to build more stuff? Your thoughts? Yeah, I think housing is a really big part of it. Uh, the other one is overall jobs in the economy and uh, how competitive we are for investment. And, you know, on the first one, there's things that the market wants to build and can build. Municipalities are unfortunately often getting in the way. Uh, so yeah. municipalities need to do their job. Uh, provinces and the federal government need to put pressure on them. And, you know, they hold the purse strings in a meaningful way and say, if you want to get this money for, you know, you want a new sewage system or you want rapid transit, uh, you need to allow the private sector to build. And then for the kinds of things that uh, the private sector just won't build, uh, you know, very, very below market, highly affordable housing, uh, which we need a lot of, of course, uh, there need to be more investments in that. Uh, the amount that we've seen made available for that is very low. Uh, but the other thing, the jobs and economy piece overall is uh, over the last two decades, uh, our economic productivity, the value that's generated by, let's say, each dollar that's invested or each hour that's worked 
work by someone hasn't actually been growing. Uh, it's been dropping at a really rapid rate. We're at about 75% of what the U.S. is at. Um, huh. And that has a huge impact on people's okay. incomes and their ability to keep pace with costs. Okay. Back to the phone calls. Daryl and Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl. Go ahead. Yes, thanks for taking my call. This yeah. isn't only a, a Vancouver, a metro Vancouver problem. As prices increase in housing and people move to Kelowna the, or, or Vernon, the prices of properties there and the cost of living is rising. One of the greatest percentage increases in rent in Canada is in Calgary. The mayor of Calgary just asked for an emergency council meeting to deal with a housing crisis there. So, when you have more people moving to an area and you create a supply and demand, prices are going to go up. And it's happening everywhere. My daughter lives south of, north of Sarasota, Florida. Housing is increasing there. So it's not just a Metro Vancouver problem. Yeah. Yeah, no, good point, Daryl. Thank you. We're, we're not alone in it for sure. Jim and Langley. Hi, Jim. Go ahead. Morning, Mike. Um, my daughter, uh, 30 years old, living at home, and we're supporting her, and she's saving money. The last 10 years, and um, in Langley, she tried to buy a two-bedroom pre-construction apartment costing 640000 uh, able to save about 250000 but quite a bit of money, you think, and she's still not qualified for a mortgage, wow. and very upsetting me, I'm, I'm almost 65, and my wife said, we have to sign for her. Yeah. You know, I want to retire, I want to enjoy my life too, so it's, it's affecting not just the young generation, but um, the parents supposed to helping too. Yeah, for sure. Jim, thank you for sharing that. And boy, if you saved up that much money, it, it, it that's a pretty tough system and you don't qualify for a mortgage. But th- that's one of the uh, the situations, Margareta, where the bank of mom and dad have to get involved in cosign for a loan or whatever, but not everyone has that option. We just got 30 seconds left here for you to wrap up. Margareta, your thoughts? Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, no, I think uh, all of us, the government, need to feel the pressure right now. Uh, voters need to say uh, enough is enough. We need solutions. We need to build more. We need to build more economic opportunities. And, yeah. uh, you know, these things are going to keep getting worse. So uh, let's keep pace with the rest of the world and let's position Canadians for better economic security. We're not doing that right now, but there are solutions possible. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.